You are listening to a Spoken Word Ministries podcast. Our heart is to proclaim the gospel and equip believers for ministry. If you're interested in learning more about our ministry, go to www.swma.ca. You can also find us on Facebook. Now sit back and enjoy this message. Each one of us is called. The scripture says each one of us has a place. And God has a purpose. And I think if there's one thing I've seen more than anything, it's purposeless people. And a lot of them in the church, too. Purposeless Christians. Well, there's a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons is, is that a lot, of, a lot of people don't think, don't think that uh, God can do anything with you. When we were preparing for a mission trip here a number of years ago, one of the things, uh, well, one of the, one of, actually, I think it was my wife, she was out, and she was talking to somebody she met, and, and uh, uh, this was years, this was back in, this is way back in my infancy, this was 92, when we were getting ready for the first Alpha uh, uh, thing, or first Alpha thing, the first Ecuador mission trip. And as she spoke with this person, the person says, why are you guys raising all these funds to go send a bunch of kids down to Ecuador? Pay a professional to do it. Send a professional. You know what our problem is today in the church? We're too professional. In virtually every area of our lives, we can't do anything unless the professionals do it. There's a problem there because it leaves everybody else paralyzed and purposeless. And I'm going to say to you that that is a lie. We are not called to be professionals. Literally, if you look at me uh, and my position, I am, I'm, quote, the professional pastor. I'm, re- I'm reading my Bible here, and I'm comparing it with my training, and I'm going, what is this? The only thing that my Bible says about what I'm supposed to do is equip you to do what God calls you to do. You're the front-line troops. You are the shock troops. Remember a couple of weeks ago, um, a number of weeks ago at the Christmas Eve service, and I shared with you the vision that God gave me of the boats coming out of the mist. D-Day, Normandy. And the occupying forces of, of Europe were staring out into the English Channel, and all of a sudden, out of the fog, came the landing craft of the Allied invasion. Well, you're in the boats. You're in the boats. You are the ones that God has called to be front line. There's a lot of aspects to our call. I want to share one with you today. It's the redemptive aspect of the call. And this deals with that thing that keeps us paralyzed depending on professionals. Because professionals have been properly trained and more than that, they've had their stuff dealt with. I'm going to say to you that a lot of professionals got more baggage than you have. The reality is is that each one of us carries a certain amount of baggage that makes us feel ill-equipped to do what we are called to do. Does this negate the call of God? I'm asking you, does it? You probably guess what answer I'm looking for. No, it does not negate the call of God. God reaches into our lives and He extends a grace and that is, that's what grace is all about. He speaks into our lives and He gives us a calling and a purpose that in many ways we are not equipped to do. 
that in many ways we don't have what it takes, that in many ways we have stuff that interferes with that call. But, and there is a but, the but is that when God comes in with his calling, he brings that grace to overcome the weakness. He brings that grace to deal with the baggage. He brings that grace to reclaim the mistakes. It's called redemption. And it is what Jesus came to do. If there is a thing that Jesus came to do, straight out, it is to bring redemption. The Scripture says He came to redeem us. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, says Titus 2.14, who came Himself for us to redeem us. Now, I don't know, are there any of you here that uh, deal with, have you ever been in a pawn shop? you been in a pawn shop? Have you, any of you ever been like belly up financially and you had to go to a pawn shop and get rid of something and then go get it back? When you go to a pawn shop, I've got to be careful about pawn shops. The last time I was in a pawn shop, I was looking at something and the guy says, hey, you want to buy that? I said, no, not at that price, I don't. He says, well, what would you give me? And so I gave him some bargain basement ridiculous price. And he says, sold! And I'm going, no! <laughs> Stop right there! Hey, how much do you mark this stuff up anyhow, you know? I was, a, I, was a, I was a buyer, and I was just sort of looking through. That's not what Jesus is. Jesus doesn't come and buy us. He's not a shopper. Jesus is a redeemer. And there's something to redeeming. When you redeem something from a pawn shop, you go to a pawnbreaker, and you're having a hard time, and you, because of your, your challenge or your struggle, you put something into the pawnbroker's hands. And what the pawnbroker does is he gives you a rip-off fee, forgive me, if any of you are pawnbrokers. I'm not trying to judge your hearts, but, but this is just the way that particular piece of the economy is. It's like, well, if you need, you need 10 bucks, I'll give you 10 bucks for your $100 stereo. There you go. The reason uh, that he, gives you he pays you so little is that he promises to keep that thing for you for 90 days so that you can come back and, quote, redeem it. So when Jesus says that he is the redeemer, Jesus is not coming for something that he didn't previously have. Jesus is coming to reclaim, to redeem those of us that were created, that were those of us who were in his possession in the first place. And as we look back at Genesis chapter 1, that is what we see. We see the, the people of God who were created to be in a relationship with God making some really bad choices. And they got themselves belly up and they ended up sold into slavery in the spiritual equivalent of the pawn shop. And the 90, day, the 90 days was coming due and, and God Almighty did something. Before we went on the auction block to get auctioned off for 12 bucks, Jesus says, it says he came and he redeemed us. He came and he gave his life not to buy us, but to buy us back. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is what it means to be redeemed, and that aspect of Jesus' activity rings throughout everything that we ever do. Because Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the one who takes our mistakes, He is the one who takes our weaknesses, and He buys back. He pays the price for those things, and He reclaims us, and He brings grace out of us. He brings goodness out of us. He brings joy out of us. He fills us. It says this, For the grace of God in Titus 2.11 that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
And you need to understand this as you realize, as you think of Jesus the Redeemer. He bring the grace of God that brings saving salvation has appeared to all people. <coughs> Excuse me. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. There's a grace of God. Now, grace literally means something that is not deserved. When somebody comes and gives me grace, they don't give me anything I ask. I, I deserve. I didn't earn it. They come and give me something that is free and something that I do not deserve. God comes to us, it says, with this huge love. And he gives us this gift of himself that we do not deserve. But there's something powerful about this gift. It, gives, it teaches us, it says, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And you need to understand what God does in your life. What his grace accomplishes in your life. It teaches you to say no to the things that destroy the relationship with Him. It teaches you to say no to the things that destroy the relationships that we have between each other. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had a broken relationship. You know, broken relationships? God? Hmm? I'm there. Okay? Had lots of them. Uh, but this scripture is blowing me away because it says it teaches me to say no to the things that cause those broken relationships. When I first met my wife, uh, she had, she brought me grace. I thought I was like, she was like way, like way up here for me. She was like gorgeous and she was vivacious and she was all this stuff that had her about six levels above me. And I used to look up there and go, wow, could never come close, never even try. And all of a sudden she started to like me and we began to click, hey, and and I'm going like, I'm like trying to take this in. And I remember the first time she loved, she told me she loved me. I couldn't even respond. I, I didn't know what to say. I just, I just, I hugged her and stared over her shoulder in panic. What do you say to that? I didn't do nothing to earn it. I didn't think I deserved it. This was grace. This woman who came to me and saw who I was and... I'm going to say to you that over the years, she's continued to pour that love into me and into our relationship. And our relationship has grown. And it, is, it has been a relationship of grace because I have received from her something that I did not deserve. Something that I did not earn. But nevertheless, something that's changed my life. And I'm going to say to you that what I received for her, this huge undeserved love that I received from her, has done something to me. It has taught me to say no to the things that destroy the relationship. Now, usually, when, when I've been told, say no. say no to this, say no to that, say no, say no to drugs, no. say no to premier. People usually preface it by taking a big old Ten Commandments club and beating the daylights out of me. Wham, 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 wham. And when I was properly submissive, say no. Okay. Why should I say no? Because you'll go to hell. Okay. All fear. The scripture says God does not deal with fear. He does not deal with punishment because punishment produces fear. He deals with discipline. He brings to us this huge grace, this gift of his love that is so incredible that it overtakes us if we're open to it. It overtakes us and it creates in us a desire to love others and to love him back. And as that grace and that love overtakes us and creates in us this desire it also makes us aware of the things that destroy that relationship. And it teaches us to say no. Why? 
Because I'm going to be, get beat up with the old Ten Commandments club? No, because I am in love with my Savior. My relationship with my wife has taught me to say no to certain things that hurt a relationship. Why? Because, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she's waiting up for me and I'm in for it again. I never walk into my house that way. The love my wife has poured into me has taught me to say no to the things that hurt our relationship simply because I love her. That is what it means to have this mighty grace of God that has come to us. And it comes to us and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, in a time and a day when it is viciously impossible almost to do so. The love of God poured out in our hearts transforms us and makes us able to say no to the things that destroy the relationship that Jesus has redeemed. Does this make sense? Well, I'm getting all worked up about it. I'm here to tell you, and I wouldn't be telling you this except you need to hear it and so do I. Jesus is our Redeemer. And the call that we have is the call. It's the call to be redeemed. To be in His presence and to receive His grace and to offer to Him those things that we think that are beyond redemption. It's past the 90-day mark, they've gone up for sale and someone else owns me. Jesus says, never. I will go there and I will redeem you in every area and every aspect of your life. And that is a part of our calling. I want to take you to just a brief illustration. His name is Joseph. And Joseph, the first time we meet him in the Scriptures, I'm going to give you my sort of compacted version of Joseph's life because the real version is ten chapters long. Uh, we see jo Joseph, basically the first time we really interact with Joseph, is, uh, is in Genesis. And uh, he's a jerk. He's arrogant. He's a, he's a favorite. He's a spoiled brat. He comes out in front of his brothers. His brothers are working out in the field, and he comes out and he says, Hey, guys, nice threads, eh? Dad loves me more than he loves you. And, of course, his brothers are going like, <laughs> muttering away at unintelligible words. The next time we see Joseph, he comes back out, and he says, Hey, guys, guess what? I had a dream, and uh, all of your stuff bowed down to serve my stuff. Pretty good, eh? comes out this time dad's there his dad Jacob hey guys guess what I had another dream the sun moon and stars all bowed down to serve me bowed down to me and even dad pipes up and says I, you're getting a little uppity by this point in time there's not a lot of love lost between Joe and his brothers Joe goes out and he checks out the fields. He's keeping tabs on his brothers. And the brothers see him coming and they say, we're going to get rid of this guy. Let's kill him right out. One of the guys goes, no, let's, let's do it worse than that. Let's, let's sell him. Actually, the, the one brother felt a little guilty. Let's sell him instead. He talks to brothers in, the other brothers. In. They grab him. They chuck him in a hole in the ground. They wait till the slave traders come by, the, the moving pawn shop. And they sell him into this slave trader caravan. And I'm going to say to you, it wasn't an easy life for Joseph right now. This young uppity fella who was a, a, a family favorite, at least for some members of the family, 
the members that had all the power. He was, he was arrogant. He was expected. And I'm going to say to you that the slave caravan was a bit like a boot camp for him. Because what they do in boot camp is they break your individual spirit. And they hammered on old Joe until he was good. He was a good guy to sell as a servant. They hammered on him and they taught him serious humility. And the next time we see Joe, he's sold into the house of Potiphar as a servant, as a servant boy. And he's been well beat so that he knows his place. But more than that, something started to come alive in him. What's, co- what's beginning to come alive in him is his faith. Now, why does it take that type of trauma to have your faith start to come alive? Because he starts to trust God. The thing goes on. He does a good job. Uh, pretty soon, he's waiting on the, on the master's uh, wife. And the master's wife begins to look at him and go, hey, pretty swanky looking. Next thing, she's going, would you sleep with me? He's going, not. She says, well, I'm not really giving you much choice. The upshot of it all, finally, uh, Joseph, uh, she attacks him, tries to drag him into bed. He leaves his coat in her hands as he escapes the house. And the injustice of it all is she frames him. She pulls an old Days of Our Lives soap opera move on him. And she frames the guy and says, Potiphar, sent to Potiphar. This guy tried, you put in charge of me, he he attacked me, tried to rape me. He gets chucked in jail. There's so much for good intentions. He got what he deserved. I think not. Like I've said before, life is not, Scripture does not teach that life is fair. It's not about being fair. It's about the grace of God in the midst of unfair circumstances. The guy's in jail. As he's in jail, well, the jailer likes him, and you know, but he's still in jail, so he's sort of like one of the head inmates. And he's in there, and he meets a couple of guys, and these guys have links with the king. He helps them out. They forget about him. One of them is later killed. And at a certain time in the future, probably by this time, Joseph is like, I don't know if I'm ever getting out of here at all. But what he does is he, he lives for God anyway. He puts himself daily in the hands of the Lord, and he's being faithful. He's dependent on God in the midst of his circumstances. And as he goes on... Uh, uh, th- one of these other guys that he helped one time is back in the king's presence and the king has a problem. The king is a little, he's a little bit of a mystic and he has this dream and he goes, i got to understand this dream. You bring me people that can, that can uh, interpret the dream and all the guys cannot interpret the dream because the king puts such stiff regulations on them they can't slide nothing past them. And a guy that was with Joseph in the jail, if this isn't too complicated, says, I know a guy. Let me get him for you. Gets Joseph out of jail. Puts him in front of the king and says, the king says, okay, interpret the dream. Basically, or you're dead. Joseph's trust in the Lord. And the Lord gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream. This so takes the king, the power of this God that lives through Joseph, that he, he puts him in the highest position in the land, gives him all authority, The king goes golfing on a permanent level. Joseph runs a kingdom. And later on, the whole thing comes full circle. The brothers who sold him into slavery, into all of this stuff, and in the process, he developed all his faith. He comes back in this high high thing, and then all of a sudden his home country has a famine, and his brothers are forced to come to him in Egypt because he has stockpiles of grain, and they're forced to beg at his feet. They come walking in. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them, and they beg. And they're hurting fellows, and I'm going to tell you how it ends. Genesis 50, 15. 
By now, Joseph's father is dead, and they, they need help. When Joseph's brother, brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. It says, when the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, them You dirty, rotten, no good so-and-sos. Did he not? Amazingly enough, I think I might have been tempted to do that myself. He didn't. His response was totally different. Because he was seeing the redemptive hand He says, God. don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish that which is now being done. The saving of many lives. I, I'm, I was not brought up in a culture like that. For me, every situation, it begins and it ends with, with a product. And it's very hard to look, it's very hard to walk into something and go, we have hope that there's going to be redemption at hand. We're just not built that way. We tend to look at the situation and get trod down by the situation, get dug underfoot by the situation. God is calling us to know that as He calls us into His service, He has a redemptive hand in our lives. This is the grace that He brings to us. This is the grace that we don't deserve this is the grace that teaches us to say no to the things that destroy the relationship. This is what Joseph, Joseph was able to see as he looked back across his life. He looked back to the day when he was an arrogant young man whom his brothers sold into slavery. He looked back to the day when the slave caravans beat him into submission. He looked back to the day when he was framed by Potiphar's wife unjustly. He looked back to the day when he was slated to prison forever. He looked back to the day when God got him out of prison. He looked back to the day when God began to speak to the king. He looked back to the day when God put him in charge of the land. And he looked back to the day, the very recent day, when his brothers finally came and laid themselves before him and said, we are yours. And he stood in that position of power. And what he saw was God's grace what he saw was God's redemptive hand, and what he heard was God's voice speaking to him. What was meant for evil in your life, God has intended for good. Why? That many lives might be saved. And it shatters our worldview, and it shatters our attitudes, and it shatters our tendency to look at our situation and go, God, why aren't you there? Why aren't you helping me? Why are you letting this happen to me? As if God didn't know what He was doing. As if God was unfaithful. As if God had promised to love us and walk with us and wasn't. What is it within your life that is the place God has abandoned you? What relationship is so shattered that it's beyond repair. 
Where is there no redemption whatsoever in your life? Where's your anger? Where's your grudges? Excuse me, but where is your inabilities? I have told you, I have said to you as a congregation that, that I can't do this ministry myself. And the reason I am speaking this, this series of messages is not to hear myself talk. I have said to you that I will speak God's call into each of your lives because God has a call for you. And God is in the process during this series of sermons of speaking to you and saying, I want what you have. And you can look at these things in your lives and say, I have this brokenness, I have this dysfunction, I have this failure. And God says, I want what you have. What has been intended in your life for evil, I have intended for good. And my prayers as I've studied this, and my prayers as I've read my Bible and come to know God in this way, have changed. Because I've begun to pray, Lord, I will receive everything at your hand. He who is for me is Jesus. Who can be against me? Can someone give something to me that is not given permission by the hand of God? Job is the classic example. Satan stands before God and he says, you give me that Job. You protect him all the time. You give him to me. I'll show you what he's really made of. God says, you can do this, but no more. You can do this, but no more. You can do this, but no more. And in the end, Job is reestablished, both in his faith, in his family life, in his finances, and God is glorified. This is the faith that God is building in us, because this is the only time. This is what God is bringing us to. It's not easy, it's not nice, it's not, excuse me, you know, I used to think, there was a song when I was a young Christian, and it was, you can be as full as you want to be. And I got, I'm going like, great, man, I'll be full like these other poor sods sitting around here. I'm going to blow past them, and I'm going to be just full of God. Just ooh. I didn't know that that meant that my flesh had to be crucified so there was room for God to be. Uh, and I didn't know how strongly my flesh would resist being crucified. And I thought that maturity could happen without trial. And I was dumb enough to say, Lord, bring on the trials. But that's not dumb either. That's God's command. Don't look at anyone who says, Lord, make me patient and say, oh, you shouldn't have prayed that prayer. Because they're doing what God told them to do. Every one of us needs to be laying ourselves before God and saying, Lord, bring it on. Bring it on. Because in the bringing on, like Joseph experienced through his walk, he found the grace of God. He experienced what it meant to, to have the Lord say what was intended for evil, I have meant for good. And God brings us through those redemptive touch points in our lives that prepare us to speak redemption into the lives that those that, of those that need it. Our call is a call that is redemptive. And Jesus is the Redeemer. The purpose He came, according to Galatians 4.4, says when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. When the 90 days was up, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, to redeem us under the, who were under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, 
This is a redemptive message. And I guess what I'm saying to you today is I'm asking you what is the area in your life that God wants to redeem? You know it. Because it's the huge thing that stands in front of you that prevents you from stepping forward for God. It's the thing that your shame comes out of. It's the thing that your self-hatred comes out of. It's the thing that you preface, if only I didn't have. Oh yeah, but I did. That's the thing. And Jesus is calling you in the great grace and his redemptive power. He's saying, I want you to come give that to me. This is the purpose of God. It's why Jesus was sent. The good news is that we are redeemed. We have been bought back. It is the grace that God leads us to. It's undeserved. It's complete. It is our hope. There's nothing more desperate than a hopeless person. They go nowhere. They do nothing. They sit in their duffs all day and live immediately in the moment because they can't stand the future. Jesus came to give us hope. It is a power to choose that which is given to us as a gift. Did you hear me? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodly. It is the power to choose that we don't otherwise have except that God gives it to us. The question, back to one of the early sermons that I preached on the six points of the call. Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to have the redemptive hand of God touch you where you feel you may not be redeemable? Are you willing? Decisions never made are never made. Does that make sense? Good news not received is never received. Hope never realized has no power to change your life. Where there is hope, there is life change. Jesus comes with a message of redemption, a message of hope. Jesus says, Know this, that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The Scripture states what has been meant for evil in our lives, God has intended for good. What do you have? And I'm going to do an altar call now. And I'm going to say to you, those of you who would like to come forward, there are going to be a few of us here to pray, and we're going to pray redemption into your lives. Whatever area God is speaking to you that needs a redemptive touch, um, I'm going to ask you to come. I'm going to ask the worship team to come because we're going to close our worship out now. And we're going to continue on with, with prayer. What is the impossible situation? What stares in you in the face like it stared Joseph in the face? If that's what you carry, then you need the redemptive touch of God because the redemptive touch of God is what draws you forward into your calling. The redemptive touch of Jesus sets you free. Those of you who would like to stay in worship, stay in worship. Those of you who would like prayer, um, come forward and gather around here. We're going to have some prayer people here for a while. Jesus wants to touch you with his redemptive hand. Bow your hearts to God and receive his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.